nice to see you all this evening. Uh, I've been, uh, I was thinking about this talk today and uh, I thought I would just mention a little bit why I'm giving this talk. Uh, it's a little bit of a follow-up from the talks that have been happening for the last few weeks about skillfulness in practice. And um, I thought it was, I think it's a good idea to really consider or begin to understand skillfulness in meditation practice and how it's understood in Buddhism and, and then to begin to develop your own skillfulness both with the meditation practice and with studying the Dharma. Um, I especially think it's helpful to begin to understand skillfulness uh, if you hear different teachings from different teachers because partly what you'll hear is different ways that the Dharma is expressed the way it's viewed, the way it's understood, and the way it's practiced. And it's not just that, oh, there's the one right way and then all those other teachers are great except for me. You know, even if that's true, that's not (laughs) really true. In other words, um, anybody who's been trained and, and has practiced long enough to teach the Dharma, at least like in San Francisco Insider, Spirit Rock, um, uh, will bring both good principles of Dharma and good personal understanding of how those values have manifested in the meditation practice, in the community practice, in the service practice, in the study practice. So you'll hear different ways, which is appropriate. Because each of you, as you become more and more skillful, will discover some parts of the practice work great for you, some parts don't work so good. There's some parts, you know, you may do mindfulness of breathing one way, and you may do mindfulness of breathing another way, you may do it a third way, or a fourth way, or a fifth way, and they can all work, but they're all slightly different because they're they're nuanced by who you are and uh, your own particular talents, skills, intelligence, creativity, and that's as it should be in the Dharma. The Dharma is not trying to create 200 people who think and look and act exactly the same. And you can't do that in San Francisco anyway. So even if we all had on the same robes and we kind of looked alike, if, even if you go to a monastery, you get to know the monastics, they're not all the same. That's not the goal of practice. The goal of practice is to illuminate the intelligence and the creativity and the heartfulness and the breadth of heart and mind that is possible, the liberation of heart and mind that is possible for human beings and comes through with slightly different nuances or with slightly different understandings of how to practice and how that illumination comes forward. And so to be skillful is to learn the the practices, to learn the skills, to learn the values, to learn the techniques, to learn the um, uh, living lineage that you are partaking in when you come and be part of a group like this or part of Buddhist practice. 
And it also means to begin to learn how to align with the Buddha's teachings about awakening. It was the one question I had about your your study about meditators is how are they studying awakening and what that means in meditation? How are they understanding what happens to consciousness when consciousness is unbound by the usual identifications, beliefs, contractions, etc., etc.? Because that's a fascinating question. And still something for us, we can all study that question in our own practice, in our own liberation. So the skillfulness is in the practices, in the values, in the study, etc., etc. But it's also in how we manifest the Dharma in daily life. In other words, you know, it's great to come to a sitting group. It's great to be, you know, do meditation or go on retreat. It's great to learn the Dharma. That's all, that's all great, all good. But it's not the end of the story. Because most of our life is not spent on retreat or at a meditation group or sitting in meditation. And so part of the practice for all of us is how to be skillful with the practices and then how to be skillful at manifesting the Dharma, the realization of the practices in our relationships, in our work, in our shopping, in our whatever it is that we're doing, in our playing, in our families, in our friendships, in our politics. And then we start to have skillfulness in Dharma. And then it gets very skillful. So tonight I I thought I thought about a few different topics I could talk about to continue uh, to look at skillfulness by looking more closely at some of the practices. And I I debated. Here was my debate: Should I start with mindfulness of the body and just go through the mindfulness practices because they're fantastic? Or should I start with mindfulness of death? Because it's part of the mindfulness of the body practice, and it's a practice that's woven through Buddhist teachings, which is, and the, the, the name is Marana Sati. Marana, Marana is death, and Sati is mindfulness. Mindfulness of death, Marana Sati. And so I'd like to start with that tonight, and then we'll see where we go the next few weeks about skillfulness and the different ways we can be skillful. Because, you know, truthfully, I could have just talked about mindfulness of breathing and the different ways to be skillful at that, or mindfulness of the body and the sensations and the movements and how to be skillful at that, or mindfulness of feelings and emotions and how to be mindful of that, or how to be mindful of the mind, which is, you get skillful of that, you will learn a lot about reality. So there's lots for us to talk about, but I thought, let's start with death. And partly I thought this because of a number of different experiences, and and you'll hear, and if you don't hear, you can challenge me about this, and say, why are we doing this? So one of my... One of my favorite 
influences in my life has been some in Zen practice, in Zen meditation. And if you go to Green Gulch or Tassajara or um, a city center here, you will hear this. California through Zen Center and the Zen Center uh, places of practice. And what you're hearing is they have hanging near near a bell and near the door to the Zendo. They have a big piece of wood, kind of about this big. It's thick, about that thick, about this big. And then they hit the bell to call you to practice. That, excuse me, they hit the, the hang is what this piece of wood is called. They bang the hang. And that's the call to practice. Now, I, love, I like that. I used to be a musician, so I like that. There's a little, little rhythm going there. But also, Painted on this thick piece of wood, it says, Great is the matter of birth and death. Life passes swiftly and is quickly lost. Awaken, awaken. Do not waste your life. So these are the words that are banged on day after day, every time there's a sitting at Zen Center. Right? Great is the matter of life, of birth and death. So just that. So you're getting, you're, you're getting a call to practice, but you're getting a teaching. It's more than just meditation. The meditation is for us to begin to recognize that great is the matter of birth and death. And, and that's how it's all put, generally, almost always in Zen. Birth and death. You don't have one without the other. Anybody notice that? <laughs> they, that's how it comes. If you have birth, you'll have death. If you have death, you've had birth. That's, that's the nature of our life, is birth and death. And so they, and often they'll do this, they'll put birth and then they'll have a dash and dash death. It's all connected. We tend to think of them generally, conventionally, we think of them as separate. Oh, like we have birth and then you, you die. And that's the bad thing. Or, you know, you, you know, they're separate things. That's not how they're thought about in Buddhism. It's one thing. Birth and death. They're connected. And they're part of our reality. And they're part of our reality that's great. They don't say... You'll notice they don't say great is the matter of birth and then death sucks. <laughs> that, that, that's not the way it's thought about. Birth and death are both great. The phenomena of reality and how reality enlivens 
itself, which we are reality as living reality, means both birth and death. And it may even be pointing to something that's harder for us to understand, which is there's something valuable in birth and there's something valuable in death. We tend to live in more of a, for lack of a better way to say it, a consumerist society. So we want birth and we don't want death. We want birth and we want to keep it forever. And it's not the way reality works. Not for anybody. Not for any animal. Not for any living thing. Doesn't just die, uh, born, and then it's here forever. You know, even even the earth will be gone soon enough. Actually, let's see. Well, lost. This is what happens. See, you you born some close, and then they die. There, <laughs> here's something. Here's an, some interesting facts. Every year, 131 million births take place. 131 million new people here this year. 53 million people die each year. And if you get a little more specific, 360,000 births take place each day. Just really let yourself get it. There's 360,000 new people on the earth today. And there's 151,000 less people, or old people, or maybe they weren't even old, They're who died today. Or if you get you know more precise, there's like 15,000 births every hour, right? We've been here an hour and a half. Not quite. Then there's 6,300 people who die every hour. Or if we get really, really down to the smallest numbers I have, there are four births every second of every day. Right? So, tick, four people were just born. Tick, four people were just born. Or tick, two people just died. Two people just died. This is, this is just reality. It's not good or bad, right or wrong. Oh, it should be different. It should some, from the Buddhist perspective, we want to learn how to pay attention and awaken with the way things are. Because we have that opportunity as practitioners. And it's one of the things the Buddha did with his life that he then taught, which is this possibility to awaken even with birth and death, even with things being um, uh, not necessarily how we want them to be, or how we think they should be, or how we imagine they should be, but actually to be present, that our consciousness, our intelligence, has a capacity to wake up, our heart and mind has the capacity to wake up with the way things are. And that's a radical teaching from the Buddha. And so, birth and death is great from the Buddhist perspective. So, another important understanding in Buddhism about why death is important is because impermanence is important. 
this reality that nothing lasts is considered a really important reality to begin to understand, to begin to perceive. And you know, we tend to, we, I, the conventional thought is, oh, it's a bad thing if everything doesn't last, or, you know, I had a good time, how can I keep it? And, you know, that's okay, great. You know, do the best you can. But good luck, right? Anybody notice they can't keep things? Every, anybody notice that even you can have a great time and it fades? You know, you can feel wonderful and it changes? If things are, feelings are impermanent, thoughts are impermanent, bodies are impermanent, Jobs are impermanent. Houses are impermanent. Flowers are impermanent. Then what, what, what are we, how are we beginning to understand the way reality is if reality is not a permanent set thing? If we are not a permanent set thing? You notice even, even our beliefs change. Even even what we love, you know, maybe when you're, you know, a 15 year old boy who loved baseball, and you know, at 35 you don't care about baseball at all anymore. It's not a big deal. You love now you love soccer. You've gotten a little more sophisticated, <laughs> or, or you've gotten less sophisticated. You love boxing. You know, whatever it is. But things change. Things are permanent. If we attach to the what's what we like and care about, thinking it's going to be permanent, will suffer. If we can enjoy it, appreciate it, love it, and let it go, both, let it change because things are impermanent, then there's a different perspective we're relating to reality from. And so death is one of the strong, major teachers about the truth of impermanence. Whoever you know, how many people have you known when they were 80 years old, 90 years old? When you know them, oh, you know there's something special here because you know they're not going to live that much longer. You know, one of the great death teachers for me was my parents' death. Those were really, those are powerful deaths to have your parents die. My mother was, I don't know, 78, something like that, and when she died, and it was, you know, she had a serious cancer like 20 years before that, you know, 58, and then and they didn't think she was going to live more than a year or two after that, and she had some surgery and treatment, and then, and then she was okay, and so she had this extra life. And it was good. And then when she got the cancer again, and it was it was really more even more clearly serious, she said, "Okay, I'm I'm done. I'm done. You know, whatever happens now, that's what happens." And it was and it was fine. But it was, you know, as a son, it's wow, that's shocking. And you know, of course, we took care of her. We kept her home. We took care of her while she died. Um, but it was very, uh, uh, it was a big learning about impermanence, not just impermanence that my mother's dying, 
But that whole world, the whole world that I knew, totally changing. Right? Even even my relationship with her, which was good, and she was a love, you know, she was good enough mom. You know, she wasn't the worst mom, she wasn't the best mom, but good enough. And, um, and uh, uh, but even I remember, you know, talking to her at one point, and at some point I just thought, oh, she didn't want to talk anymore. That didn't matter to her anymore. You know, I wanted to, you know, it's the end of life, you know, I wanted to hear whatever wisdom she was going to give me or whatever she had to say. And, uh, and then at some point it was clear she didn't want to talk anymore. And then she died. And then, you know, then it's caring for her body after the death, which is, if you can do that, if you have the uh, capacity developed to do that. Not, and just so you know, I've done a lot of hospice work before that. I've been with a number of people who died, so it wasn't a new situation for me. And, you know, we we took care of her for a day or so before she was taken away and cleaned her body. Just just to do that was for the, the dead person and, and the, the ritual of life and death. It's part of what we get as human beings. Not a, not, not a mistake a reality and not a bad reality you know sometimes it's tragic and and then also sometimes it's just death and even for my mother she was ready to couple and uh, or for my dad who lived surprisingly like another 15 years not not quite that 13 years after she died he was a little old he, he died at 91 and he was tired of being alive to be honest really if I'm can I be honest with you here I mean he was like he was sometimes he would call us up and say I can't believe I'm still alive you know my wife died my friends have died I'm tired of being alive and I'm here I am and you know we would we would do our best to support him and try to get him you know, into situations that were good or helpful. Even he did some therapy at 90. And, I, and my dad was not a therapy kind of guy, believe me. But, uh, but it helped a little bit. And uh, But he was ready to go when he died. He, he was, that was clear. It, you know, at certain point in life, it's, you know, it's near the end. And there may be that something happens inside that makes it a little more okay than we usually think about death. So, so, and this is what is saying here, life passes swiftly. Even at 70 or 80 or 90 or 100, really most people feel like life went like that. Boom. Life went, it went quick. And if you even think about your own life, you know, like if you're 20, well, if you think about when you were 10, that's already a long time ago. It's like, who even cares about what happened at 10? You know, there may be one or two things you think about, but it's gone. If you're 40, 20 is like, that was, I was young at 20, and now I know a lot more. If you're 50, then you know a lot more than you did at 30 or at 40. It all, and then it all, it's all gone. Not much stays. If you have a lot of crap from when you were 20 and you're 50, 
really people are saying, why can't he get rid of that stuff, you know? Because you don't need it. You need some new stuff generally or, you know, something current or something uh, uh, that you use now. You don't need the sweater you had when you were, you know, 19 and it looked good when you were on your first date or something, you know. So, so here, and in, in just on the sign here at Zen Center, greatest the matter of birth and death, life passes swiftly and is quickly lost, awaken, awaken. And this is the teaching that we're doing. We're doing a teaching that awakens. Do not waste your life. What are you doing with your life? If you want to be skillful in practice, this is one of the questions to ask. What are you doing with your life? And it's not, it's not like, oh, all you should do is Buddhism. I'm not saying that. First of all, what do you want to do with your life? That's an important question for human beings to ask. What's important to you? At some point, education is important. At some point, a certain kind of job is important. At some point, family is important. At some point, you know, relationship or marriage or community or politics. These are important things. Do them. But do them with your intelligence, with your creativity, with your heartfulness, with your awareness, with your awakeness, with your mindfulness. Whatever they are. So you don't have to go off to a monastery to do Buddhist practice. You can do Buddhist practice. Nobody has to think about it as Buddhist. You don't even have to think about it as Buddhist. Think about it as being awake. Think about it as being aware. And then seeing all the fruit of what happens with being awake and being aware is. Because your intelligence will wake up more. Your, your love and your heart and your compassion and your joy. It's the, the capacities of the human being are not limited. Should I say that again? Our, what's good about human beings is not limited to some idea, oh, I'm only this smart, or I'm only, I only have this much love. Maybe at some point that's true, there's a limit. But that limit is not imposed by reality. That limit is something we have bought into, or developed, or learned, or been trained in some way. And you can be trained in different ways. Each of us can be trained in new ways, in fresh ways. We can awaken to what, to the potential of the human heart and mind. And that's what awakening points us at. So, um, Maranasati, it's about mindfulness of death. Personally, I was involved with the Zen Hospice. How many people here have been involved with Zen Hospice? Okay. <coughs> Seven or eight people? Great. So, Zen Hospice was started by, oh, well, by my friend Frank Ostaseski, but I'm forgetting the woman's name. Pardon? Who? Martha DeBarros. Thank you. Martha DeBarros. Yeah, wonderful woman. Great, 
great being, great heart and mind. They started the Zen Hospice Project probably 20 years ago now, maybe even more, I can't remember. And, uh, and I practiced with them. I, 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 uh, I bowled my way in at some point after their first retreat. They had a training retreat for volunteers, and I, I was on a meditation retreat. And I came back and found out, so I started calling and saying, well, what can I do? Is there anything I can do so I can be part of Zen Hospice? And they said, well, you come to training, and then, well, is there anything you need now? Or da, da, da. Finally, Frank, finally he called me back. <laughs> it took a while. And he said, uh, well, come in and let me meet you, and let me, let's talk. And he came in, he wanted to check me out, make sure I wasn't too crazy, you know, for their work. And, and then, so we, we had a nice talk, and he was, he was challenging, but good. And, and then he said, okay, well, you, you could do some, uh, you could help get some things. I, you know, I can't let you work with people because you didn't have any training. So I said, great, I'm happy. You need something bought, I'll go buy it. I can go buy medicines or, you know, whatever's needed. And then like four days later, he called me up. He said, well, we're having a problem with our first person who we've taken into to Zen Center and uh, we need help. Can you do a volunteer shift with this person? I'm like, sure, I can do that, no, no problem. And so another day or two later, it was, uh, uh, like on the weekend, I, I went to Zen Center to meet this woman named Stella. And so Frank takes me up, and he introduces me to Stella. He tells me before, and he said, you'll have four hours, you'll be with her, you know, just take care of her, do what she needs, and, you know, that's it. And he takes me and he introduces me to Stella, who's, who's in a bed, you know, big big woman in a bed and not moving around much. And so he introduces me and she says hi, and then he leaves. And I'm like, shit. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what to do. And so I start, we start talking with Stella. And finally I said, well, you know, Stella, I haven't had any training. And she said, oh, that's okay. We all need a little help. I'll help you out. And she, she trained me, of course, about how to care for her. And it was, it was fantastic to work with her. I worked with her for quite a while until she died. And uh, she was, you know, amazing woman. But, but it, it taught me something immediately about Buddhism and practice. Buddhism is about real life. It's not transcendence is not about getting away from real life. Transcendence is about discovering the transcendent in the middle of real life, of human life, of things that are good and things that are not good. In the middle of birth, in the middle of death. There's a there's a famous quote in in the, uh, Egyptian culture from the Mahabharata there's a question they ask what is the greatest marvel what is the greatest marvel and then if they answer it they say each day death strikes and we live as though we are mortal this is the greatest marvel every day death strikes and we live as if we're mortal well if you're going to get anything here tonight, I want you to get you're not immortal in, as a human being. 
you're not going to live forever. Everybody here got that? I mean, really. That, and this is not a bad thing, and I'm not trying to... It's not with, In Buddhism, we don't do this, talk about this, study this, practice with this, because it's bad, or to be depressed, or get down. Or, no, it's more... It's for the same purpose, for awakening, for freedom, to liberate the heart and mind from the usual ways it gets contracted, held, attached, clings to reality. And I know for me, when I started working with people who were dying, it had a big impact. Because I thought I was going to live forever. (coughs) Not consciously, unconsciously, that was the belief. I I just didn't know enough about life. I just thought, oh, you know, I'm, I'm doing great. I'll always do great. You know, it'll always be fine. You know, again, not as a conscious way of thinking, but as an unconscious way of living, being, relating. That there's illusion we often have, if not consciously, unconsciously, that we'll live forever. And part of the reason I wanted to talk about death a little more was because as many of you know, I had a serious bicycle accident in September. I was gone from SF Insight for the first time in 20 years. I was gone for four months because I was uh, seriously hurt and could have died in what happened. And it was um, very, I'm incredibly grateful and appreciative for practice because it was I, you know, I'm, I don't want to make glorify what happened to me at all. I, I don't don't do it. <laughs> you know, I had a, a serious bike accident and fall on a big downhill in Marin, and you know, hit my head even though I had a helmet on and unconscious, and and uh, took quite a while to really stabilize and come back. But there was clearly a period right after the accident where I didn't know if I was going to live or die. And I was conscious of that. And that was not a horrible thing. Just, at least in my case, this time, maybe next time it happens to me, it'll be horrible. It wasn't a horrible, it was just clear. Oh, I could live or I could die. And they both have their truth. They both have their reality. And really, they were both okay with me at that point in my accident. And um, believe me, I'm totally happy to be alive. But I'm not happy in the conventional way I would have thought, though, when people say, oh, I'm alive, I'm so happy. It's so, it's much more, uh, it's just different. I don't even know if I can tell you exactly how, but it's much more appreciative of the life phenomena and feeling also like, oh, it would have been fine to die, which is not the way I used to think. You know, I mean, I thought, okay, we'll die, we'll see what happens. And and even still, I still think that to some extent, because we will see. All Everybody here is going to see what happens. No doubt about it, right? That's the deal. And And... You, the end of human life, at least as far as I can tell, short term, like right after, consciousness doesn't necessarily die, 
even though human life dies. There's some kind of awareness. Some, something's still happening. Who knows what? I'm not, I'm not an expert in that. But, but I, it makes me very encouraged to practice Maranasati, mindfulness of death practices, because it's something we're, we're going to have to work with. And also because our identification, our attachment with the body and, human, and humanity is a very deep attachment. And I'm not telling you get rid of it. I'm not, that's not the kind of teacher I am. But pay attention to consciousness itself. And then to all the things that get put on consciousness as me or mine, like body, or feelings, or emotions, or thoughts, or all that stuff. And this is one of the things that will happen with mindfulness practice, is we can start to see the particulars of our life, of human life, as a rising and passing, rising and passing, rising and passing. Beautiful. Birth and death. Birth and death birth and death. This is another way it's talked about in Buddhism. It's really moment-to-moment birth and death. That really, one of the ways in Buddhism life is talked about is life is happening for just a moment. And then it's gone. And then there's new life. And then it's gone. Life, gone. Life, gone. That's the reality of being consciousness is alive. And then it's gone. And then it's here. And it's gone. It's here. Each moment is brand new. Each moment is actually a new moment. The past, beautiful to have memories, beautiful to have, you know, souvenirs, beautiful to remember, but it's not here anymore. My bicycle accident, gone. That is gone. Five weeks of hospitalization, it's gone. Whether I liked it, didn't like it, whether it was good or bad, it's gone. My parents, I love them, they're gone. The people you know who have died are gone. The people who you knew when you were kids who you've never seen again, that's, that's the path. What's here now, thoughts, memories, beliefs, feelings, emotions, states of heart and mind, that's great. They're all good. But the past itself is not alive exactly. What's alive is all this phenomena, moment by moment by moment. And so the Buddha, let's see, where should I go here since I've got to be through one of six pages of the talk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is, this is, uh, now this is the problem of my accident. I want you to know that. <laughs> really, I'm, I'm just, I'm so much less organized. It's kind of great. But, uh, <laughs> it's, 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 so, okay, I'm going to go on for a few more minutes, but then we'll continue next week with this talk. But, so, so when I talk about the body, the attachment to the body, the identification with the body, for most of us, like, that's just reality. That's the, you know, sometimes people hear this in Buddhism and think, what the, what the hell are they talking about? What do you mean? You're not identified with your body? You're not attached to your body? 
Well, maybe you can have both identification and non-identification, or attachment and non-attachment. In other words, this body is here and we definitely have a very intimate relationship with it, right? On every level, feeding it and cleansing it and taking care of it and, and, and healing it and dying with it. But it may not be the end of, or the, the final definition of who and what we are. Consciousness may be more than body. So here's, I'll just read this. This is from the Buddha. It's a beautiful quote. He's talking about, he's talking to the monks and nuns, the practitioners, about his life, his personal life. And he, he was, he lived the, in, in his time and era, he lived a good life, you know, before he was the Buddha. In other words, he was, he was the son of a prince, or he was a prince, the son of a king. And he said, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace. One where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. Right? I mean, he had, he had nice digs, basically. <laughs> he said, a white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from cold, heat, dust, dirt, dew. And I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, one for the rainy season. And during the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them. And I did not once come down from that palace. <laughs> I hope you get that. Right? He lived a very full human life at that point. And then he says, even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me. And basically he has three reflections that impact him. And the reflection is, uh, I'll just read it. When an untaught, ordinary person, him or herself, subject to aging, not beyond aging, sees another who is aged, agent, he or she is horrified, humiliated, disgusted, oblivious that he or she too is subject to aging. If I, who am also subject to aging, were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another person who is aging, this would not be fitting for me. And as I notice this, the typical young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away. So he has a contemplative reflection on aging and his young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away. And then he says, he continues, even though such good fortune, when an untaught ordinary person is subject to illness, not beyond illness, sees another who is ill, they are horrified, humiliated, disgusted, oblivious that they too are subject to illness. If I, who am subject and, and were to be horrified, humiliated, disgusted on seeing another person who is ill, that would not be fitting. And you know, we could change the translation. Fitting might be, that would not be illuminating for me. That would not be helpful for me. Right, he says. And as he noticed this, the healthy person's intoxication with health entirely dropped away. Now, this is an important word. He doesn't say that I'll do a little more and then I'll, I'll 
give a little commentary. And then he says, even though I was endured and endowed with such fortune, total refinement, I, the thought occurred to me that even if so, for ordinary people subject to death, not beyond death, sees another person who is dead, they are horrified, humiliated, disgusted, oblivious, that they too are subject to death. If I, who am also subject to death, not beyond death, were to be horrified, humiliated, disgusted on seeing another person who is death, dead, that would not be helpful to me. That would not be fruitful for me. That would not be fitting for me. That would not be illuminating for me. As I notice this, the living person's intoxication with life entirely dropped away. So that's, that's a powerful teaching from the Buddha about aging, about illness, about death. And I want to be careful here because you want to notice how you heard what I said. He didn't say youth is bad or, or being healthy is a drag or living is crummy. He didn't say anything negative about youth or health or life. What it said is the intoxication with youth, health, and life dropped away. So think a little bit of what you're like when you're intoxicated. Even with alcohol, do you see clearly? Do you see what's true? Do you see how to do things in the best way? My, my understanding when I read this and I think about the intoxication is means, oh, I project a fantasy on you. I project an unreality on health. I project things that are not true about life. And if that intoxication falls away, what happens? And of course, for the Buddha, part of what happened is he became the Buddha. He awakened. He practiced seriously, skillfully, in a dedicated way. And what he saw, awakening, happened for him. It wasn't by denying aging or denying illness or denying death, but it was by actually seeing, oh, this is the reality. And actually we can awaken within the reality both the good parts and the difficult parts of reality. We don't have to be afraid of them. We don't have to deny them. We can actually get enlightened with them. That's a radical teaching. Let's sit for a minute before we end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.